So here's a news flash that will hopefully surprise no one. You can't do it alone. That's the title of a new book by a guy named Matt Rolf. Matt is a uh, restaurant coach, uh, a public speaker, uh, an all-around smart guy, an all-around nice guy. Uh, he's the, also the guest on today's episode, and I want to talk all about uh, this book, and I want to talk all about how we find uh, how we find people, how we find the right people, how we keep the right people. Again, you can't do it alone. It's the name of his book. We're going to talk all about that book on today's episode. Don't go anywhere. There's an old saying goes something like this. You'll only find three kinds of people in the world. Those who see, those who will never see, and those who can see when shown. This is Restaurant Strategy, a marketing podcast for anyone who's looking. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in. My name is Chip Close and this is Restaurant Strategy, a weekly podcast all about helping chefs and operators build more profitable restaurants. Each week we toggle back and forth between a monologue style format and an interview, but the goal is always the same, to take complicated marketing concepts and make them both understandable and actionable. Why? Because like I always say, information is only as valuable as the action it inspires. Now, this week's episode is sponsored by Virtual Restaurant Group, VRG. They offer innovative turnkey delivery-only brands that you're able to easily operate out of your existing restaurant with very little disruption to your current operation. So we're talking ghost kitchens, right? A a restaurant that would only be visible on third-party delivery sites as a way of driving additional revenue using the infrastructure you've already got. By adding virtual brands into your business model, you're able to diversify your revenue streams and, in the end, generate more revenue. So you've already got a kitchen, right? A staff, the space to do this. Why not maximize your square footage by adding additional brands to help you increase your bottom line? Best of all, VRG handles everything on the back end. They provide Cubo technology totally free. The very architecture of this software allows you to turn on as many brands as you want, list those brands on as many partner sites as you want, and field all of the orders through one singular tablet and printer. You're not locked into any long contracts. It's 100% free to start. VRG's flagship brand, it's called Midnight Munchies. It was one of LA's very first ghost kitchen concepts uh, and generate up to $30,000 a month just in online ordering revenue. Onboarding is super easy with recipe guides and step-by-step training for you and for your staff. Visit virtualrestaurantgroup.com slash chip and use the promo code CHIP2021 to get started. That link is in the show notes. So my guest on today's show is a gentleman named Matt Rolf. He is a coach, a public speaker, an entrepreneur, uh, works with uh, hospitality individuals uh, all over this country and Canada where he's based out of. He's also the founder of West Shore Hospitality Group and Results Hospitality. Matt, quite a resume. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Uh, Of course, the one uh, piece I left out of the intro is you're also now an author. 
Uh, I recently wrote a book called You Can't Do It Alone. Talk to me about this book and why you wrote the book. Yeah, and it's um, a question I get asked a lot. I never saw myself uh, writing a book based on uh, my school track record, um, but I started to see patterns. So I get the opportunity to meet with hundreds of hospitality leaders and whether they were running an independent restaurant, a multi-site group or a national chain, I was seeing patterns in the conversations I was having with you know people really struggling with the workload people struggling with legacy. So what do I do as I look to transition or, or retire? And the pattern was that most leaders are overworked, overwhelmed, and struggling to find balance as no surprise. But I do find after studying top operators that there are some things that we can do. Because you know when you look at an operator in industry just going through COVID for the last couple of years, and the amount of stress and weight, whether they're an owner or a manager, has been remarkable. And we want to see a, a pass through. So the idea was that how can we write a book that can help people see creating a sustainable and scalable restaurant or restaurant group. So uh, repeatable, scalable, profitable. Yeah. Um, those things don't often go hand in hand with restaurants. Uh, before we hit record here, uh, we were kind of trading notes because you and I, I think, do very similar things. Uh, we work with leaders. We coach uh, in the hospitality space. The the big difference is that I work with a lot of small independents, uh, and you kind of notably work with uh, much bigger groups. Um, but I want to see if we can find the parallels. I'm sure there's quite a bit of overlap. So now as we're, well, I'll ask, pre-COVID and now post-COVID, even though we're still in the throes of it, let, let's call it post-COVID for, for lack of a better way of describing it. What are the common threads and what are the things that have newly emerged in the in the work that you do? In the work through COVID and the transition, I think, you know, as we talked about just before we hit record is uh, understanding our financials and understanding profitability. So why are we doing this? So businesses could operate pre-COVID and people could pay salaries and maybe squeak out some profit on a good year, or have some slight losses on a challenging year. But that all went away based on closures, cash flow to make it to this point. So there's there's more attention, which I think is great on our financials and on our stability or sustainability as a business. And one thing that I say is that COVID, um, it didn't create these problems in my in my from my perspective. It really magnified pre-existing issues that were there. That's so right. I think for those that, that do survive, um, as hard as it's been, and I say this so respectfully based on what people have gone through, as hard as it's been, those that make it, it's going to make us stronger. So the financial side is one thing, and and the focus of my work and, and the book is it, it really magnified our people situation. Yeah. So how do we treat our people? How do we keep them? You know, what is culture in a restaurant? Yeah, so uh, this gets to the heart of everything that, I mean, there's so many, there's so much you talk about in the book. Um, you're well read. Uh, you 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 quote a lot of uh, a lot of the people that I've read, a lot of the books that I've read. You kind of mm -hmm. go back to Jim Collins over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, of course, he's written, you know, just a number of great books. Good to Great is probably his most famous. I, I want to quote this um, because this is part of his, you know, his pillars throughout. In addition to the flywheel and the hedgehog and all this, and one of the first things he talk about talks about in that book is get the right people on the bus and in the right seats. Before you figure out what you're gonna do, get the right people to surround yourself with. I do wanna focus this conversation on the people. Again, you wrote a book called You Can't Do It Alone. I think that's uh, obvious, um, but not always uh, intuitive. 
um, because we we are used to building our businesses ourselves, and it's a it's an extension of what we want to do. Um, but it's true, we, we can't do it alone, right? We we hire people who are going to have much more contact than we will with our business, right? Uh, no restaurant owner will um, will speak to as many guests as their busboys will, right? Uh, will speak to as many guests as their reservationists will. So talk to me about what that means to you, that, that Jim Collins idea of, of get the people on, get the right people on the bus and get them in the right seats. Yeah, I think, you know, what it comes down to, what I was seeing before is people would hire staff or managers. So we put a post out, you know, maybe they were lucky enough to get an interview. We'd hire them and, and hopefully they stick. But there wasn't as, as much thought um, that I think is needed around what is the impact of those individuals. Um, a lot of things we coach our clients, it's not about the best cook or the best servers. It's about finding people who believe in what the experience we're trying to create inside our restaurant. And you know, whatever city you're in in North America, wherever you are listening to this podcast, the reality is we don't need another restaurant. <laughs> you know, no city needs another restaurant. There's going to be hundreds closed this year, but it's it's about creating an experience and finding the right people who see your vision, are willing to support it when you're there and when you're not and help make it a reality because no one individual can create an experience for their guests, as you said, takes a team. It's, it's so true. And I laughed because it's one of the things that, uh, that I talk about uh, all the time. So we just, we don't need just another anything like, no. like we already have, I've already got a great Irish pub. Uh, the bartenders know my name. It's convenient. It's, uh, you know, I, I know the food, like I don't need, we don't need another. I already mm -hmm. have my favorite sushi place. I got my favorite Chinese restaurant. Um, I got my favorite steakhouse. We don't need just another anything. And so, so then talk to me about that because I think uh, understanding vision, right? Being able to say clearly, uh, this is who we are. This is who we're for, right? This is the problem we're solving. This is why we exist um, is something that I think a lot of operators overlook. And w what you're saying is that you can't skip that because uh, the next step is that you've got to be able to communi uh, communicate and instill all of that in the people that you hire. So. How do you do that with your with the clients that you coach with? How do you get them to identify their why, right? The, sure. That thing that Simon Sinek's always talking about. Yeah, and love Simon Sinek's work and, and everything he shared over the last decade around starting with why. But one thing I ought to go back to get people grounded as to what their why is, is taking them back to before they got the keys, you know, to when they signed the bank loan, um, when they were working in a dusty restaurant, you know, an independent small place, and, and they saw their vision and their dream. You know, nobody started a restaurant to say, I'm going to open up another coffee shop or Chinese food restaurant or Irish pub, and they just saw pints and burgers. You know, they, they saw something special that they could feel. So I'll take them back to, you know, let's let's forget about where we are, but, you know, why did you go down this track? You know, we know the failure rate in restaurants. There was something you saw that you believed. There was a gap in the market you felt you could do better. And does that still exist? So that's the grounding. And then, you know, have we evolved? Have we changed? Have we pivoted for a pandemic word? Um, and if we have, that's okay too. But, you know, there's there's a huge opportunity for anybody out there to get very intentional about why their restaurant exists, you know, why their community, their local community or city needs them. And then yeah. you know, what are they looking to, what's the experience they're looking to create for their guests? It's so important, and I find so many operators just skip right over it. It feels frivolous to be able to do that. It's like, well, I can't do that because I got to do the schedule. I got to chop this. I got to prep this. I got to set up my meats. I got to do three more interviews. I got to, like, there's all this stuff you need to do, right? There's that quote, and I always get it wrong, but it's, um, you know, the, the urgent always crowds out the important, right? And it feels frivolous to talk about why you exist. It's like, well, what do you mean? I, I exist because. And they never answer it. And I, I think it's I think it's so so crucial. 
So then they do it. And then talk about how you communicate that, because it's not just about telling people one time, right? It's about it's it's through your actions, right? You make it obvious through the choices that you make. So so talk about how how you yeah. how the best brands exhibit their why. And I think it's for me, it's the words are are great. So a vision statement, a mission statement, and, and often they're written as marketing strategies, right? They're really meant to sound good. So the way that we we work on the communication is if this, so yesterday I had a chance to meet with a client that we did work with a few years ago, and they were part of a national chain expansion here in Toronto, uh, Canada. So 30 locations and everybody in Ontario where I live, all the national chains started to look, you know, dark TVs, black uniforms, and they all started to look the same. And this place was, um, it's called the Muskoka Grill, so a cottage location. So when I started working with them, they looked like everybody else. And there's nothing wrong with it, but there was no competitive point of difference across the five casual dining chains, even hundreds of locations. You took the name off the, off the front door, you couldn't understand what the difference was. But yesterday when I went in, I was so happy to see what we got them back to when it came to their vision was cottage hospitality. So they're called Turtle Jacks Muskoka Grill. And what they really wanted to do is make you feel as if you arrived at the cottage. You know, they said when you arrive at a cottage, you get a drink in your hand before you hit the patio. You know, you're offered food. Someone takes you, sets you in. There's a greeting. And we're able to create this vision, um, share it with the staff consistently, not once, but repeatedly. And when I walked in this location yesterday, it wasn't dark with TVs everywhere. It was white. You know, it looked like a Muskoka cottage. The, the new builds are beautiful. And you could feel what they were trying to create. And what they created was a competitive point of difference where they can stand out. So the first step is how do we document it? So how do we get something simple, one sentence, it's got to be clear. And then the question I go to is how does this show up in the restaurant? What does it look like on the floor? What does it look like on the kitchen? And then we're relentless um, in communicating that over and over and over. If your staff can't you know, mimic you for your vision, you know, do an impression of you, then uh, I don't think you're repeating yourself enough um, to make sure they really understand that it's not just a saying that it matters. So sorry for that, Maria, but hopefully it's some context. No, I, I love it. You have no reason to apologize. I, I love all of this. I always, I was talking, you know, I was thinking about this the other day where you hear, you know, you hear different people kind of use this disparagingly, like, oh, those people over there are really drinking the Kool-Aid, right? They're really drinking the Kool-Aid at that place. And I, and I can remember saying that too about certain restaurants and in, now it's all I can think about. And I go, we want Kool-Aid. You got to make sure you have Kool-Aid. And then I, like, I think, I think not enough places have Kool-Aid. So the story you just pointed out uh, reminded me of it. Like they got Kool-Aid now. They, they got something for people to drink. People were like, when they shared that at their annual conference, you know, they brought all their franchisees in and shared it. And it was like, people stood up and said, we get it. Like, that's why we put across a couple million dollars in this investment into these franchises, two, three million bucks, whatever it is, it's, they're not small spots. And they're like, yeah, that's us. And that's, that's how we stand out. And I learned the repeated messaging side from when I worked for Anheuser-Busch. Um, there was Anheuser, it was InBev. So this, the CEO of just leaving Anheuser-Busch is Carlos Brito. And if you look at what Anheuser-Busch has done over the last uh, 20 years or even 15 years, they took over the world. Yeah. And I got a chance to see Carlos come up and, and take over the Canadian company. And he just he repeated the same three things at all levels of the organization every day, like relentless execution. And last year, you know, Anheuser-Busch made $22 billion in profit, yeah. more than all consumer packaged good companies um, combined. 
So everybody else combined, they made more. So one thing I always go, success leaves clues, as Tony Robbins says. And we're not trying to be Carlos Brito. But if you're running an independent restaurant doing 700,000 in sales, consistent messaging still matters. Yeah, it's funny. Josh Copel always talks about this, this idea of patterning, right? Yeah. That we don't have to do the heavy work of coming up with a brand new wheel. The, the wheel's already uh, already been created. We just have to make a, we just have to refine it for our needs. We got to present it in a different way. So you come up with your why. You figure out your your clear differentiation, right? And that not only is something that gets communicated to your people, but that helps define. And I want to use this as a as a jumping uh, jumping off point into the book. Sure. That helps define who you find and and how you find them right so so then talk about that so again back to this jim collins idea of make sure you get the right people on the bus if you know what you're all about then you know the kind of people you're looking for who can execute that explain that how you attract people 100 percent um one of my favorite exercises is working with clients on who are their guest avatars so top three guest profiles but more importantly who are their employee avatars and not to get into those details now but who is the person that will likely represent your food your beverage your guest your vision consistently and you probably already have one or two of them working for you already so it's looking at those people that you love um that if you could clone you would if you could find 10 more you'd hire them tomorrow and that that's where you have to be intentional hiring you know one of the concerns now with the hiring shortage is people are going to hire just because and what that's going to do come january it's going to create a whole wave of turnover that's going to leave these restaurants more vulnerable than if they slowed down and really tried to find people who who believe in what they're looking to do and i know that again easy to say based on the challenges we're facing but i think it's it doesn't start with the people it starts with the intention of the ownership or leadership or management to, to be they say here's here's what we're looking for you know sally's an ideal hire yeah 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 absolutely so again something we talked about before we hit go and something i've talked about uh, a lot on this podcast with other guests are is this idea that this staffing crisis feels acute uh, but it is anything but it's chronic it may really hurt today but this has been going on going on going on and we're just feeling it more right now given the the kind of uh, you know political social you know economic you know circumstances uh, surrounding covid-19 and our our uh, you know attempts to get out of it but how do we it's easy again you know, the urgent pushes out the important, but this more than any other time is the time to stop and do the important work. How do we reshape this or how do we begin doing this hard work to find the right people, not just finding the people? Sure. And I, I think, you know, from all of the the training that I've done and, and had a chance to, uh, when I got into coaching, it was more about hospitality in my experience. And now I've worked with, you know, coaches like Tony Robbins, but I've also worked with a lot of therapists around kind of what what's the thought process around creating change. And as you know, human beings, we either move towards pleasure or we move away from pain. Like that's, that's it. So for our side is what's going to create change is for most, you know, great teams that got to a point where they weren't willing to put up with where they were at, where, no matter what it was. But there's going to become a point where, you know, I know that there's owners and VPs and you're working on a line right now in restaurants and that's created enough pain for them to change your hiring strategy. But if you're sitting in an independent restaurant right now, it's just, are you willing to put up with that turnover? You know, the biggest expense in restaurants that's not measured in, on a P&L is staff turnover. That's right. Because you got to find, train, retrain, replace, find, train, retrain, replace. Um, so I think it's now it's just, are you willing to go through 2022 
the way that you did 2021 or maybe 2018. But for 2022, it doesn't need to be as hard as it currently is. Yeah, it's going to get harder before it gets easier, but you can make a change. I feel the same way. I feel like I've been saying that for a while and I feel like nobody believes me. And I'm thrilled to hear you say that. I, I was saying that I think the next 18 months are going to be even harder than the last 18 months. And everybody laughs at me. And I said, no, I watch it, watch it because we're at a, like we're at the watershed moment, but like now we're just, now we're just in a sprint at the end of the marathon, right? But at the end of this, we're going to have to run another marathon. And right now we're just figuring out how, and I always say you can do anything in short sprints, right? You, you can you can put up with most things if you say, and I hear a lot of operators saying this right now, like I just got to get through to the end of the year because uh, we're so busy. We got parties, we got this, but it, it's going to be a whole other year and we're going to have a downturn in business. And and what do you do with all that? And like you said, turnover, right? Turnover happens in, in January and February. Nobody's leaving their restaurant now, but everyone's going to, if they're going to move, they're going to make a move then. So... In the book, you talk about these three pieces, right? Attract, retain, and develop as really being the, you know, the providing the sturdy base for um, for a healthy kind of employee base. Um, we 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 can attract, right? We hire a lot of people, but we don't necessarily retain, and certainly, I think we do a really bad job of developing that staff. Can you talk about that third piece, uh, staff development? What does that mean to you, and how do you put that into practice? And I think for me, it's, it is it is customized depending on the size of the operation and the group, but it's not complicated. Um, one thing we learned through COVID and the Gallup organization has shared this statistic for, for years. They do the largest employee engagement survey every year, 8 million people across eight business sectors. And what's proven is that what people want after their base financial needs are met is the ability to grow and develop in their roles. And it doesn't mean that they need to get promoted. Certain people, that's their motive. And you got to look for that in your hiring process because if you can't promote, don't hire a superstar that wants to go down that track. Mm -hmm. But people want to grow and develop and they want to be feel that they're evolving inside their roles. And that can look, people are, are starved to learn. People want to hear from leadership. They want to have coaching sessions so they can develop as people. Um, they can develop as managers. There's a want there and a craving if it's done right. But I think when it comes to development, it's looking at a frequency of interactions with your people. Development's not an event, it's a process. Yeah. So for your calendar for next year, you know, are you going to have a monthly meeting with your management team? And if you're doing that, that's great. Monthly meeting with intention, where you're not talking at your people, you're allowing them to share. Are you going to have book clubs? Are you going to bring in outside courses? Are you going to, going to, going to? It doesn't take much, but I think you should have at least three activities that you're looking to do consistently next year that shows your people you're investing in them. But more importantly, it's not about do they become a better you know, floor manager. It's do they become a better person and do we create better connection because we care about them as humans. Because if you don't invest in them, somebody's going to. Yeah. So then talk about that because this ties in so closely with empathy. And empathy is, you know, first and foremost, I'm a marketer. Um, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the consumer to figure out what their pain points are, to be able to uh, craft a solution that solves the problem they have. The same is true with the people, right? And too often, I don't think we ask enough questions to understand what they're looking for, right? We, we just assume, oh, people want a job, they want money, right? But all jobs pay money, so let's say, you know, all things being equal, every job will pay money. And I think, I think now we've gotta start thinking about the other things that people want. How do you do that? How do you ask people? How do you get to know what people want beyond just a paycheck? 
It's a it's a great question. That's the the point of um, making sure that it's a process, not an event. But the best way to do it is is to listen. Um, you know, there's a a great book by Michael Bungay Stainer called The Coaching Habit, and he's got a, a seven question one on one process. We've got it on our website um, that just allows you to really connect with an individual in a one on one process, or if you have a team, what they're used to seeing is us show up and share with them. Here's our vision. Here's our message. Here's our plan. Here's our feature. Here's our promos. If we want to change the relationship and make it feel different for them and ultimately for us, it's changing that dynamic and having some great questions and just sitting back and listening without feeling the need to respond, um, without feeling the need to react initially. It really is just the ability, you know, one of the things that I do going into sessions that I, I had somebody call me last week and say, can you stop making my people cry in your workshops? <laughs> um, and he was joking because every and he jokes because he's, he's had a couple breaks in our sessions as well. But, and he was, I tell you, he was a little bit sensitive. He meant it this time. And I said, Rick, I'm not making your people cry. I'm just asking them how they're doing. And based on COVID, you can see that I come in a different context and position as a coach, but to look somebody in the eyes and they know that I care about them as a human being. That's why I love my work. And to look them deep in the eyes and say, I care about you. How are you? And you see tears start rolling down, you know, a CEO's face or a manager's face or a chef's face. And it happens all the time. But that's the opportunity. They're not just going through a challenge at work. They're going through a challenge at home. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes we spend more time at work than we do at home, right? I see uh, my coworkers, my colleagues, uh, my my partners, the other uh, the other cooks, the other uh, the chefs, the servers, way more than we see our spouses or our kids, and that's just the reality of work these days in our modern world, and certainly restaurant life. I, I love the example. So you talked about you know you coaching a client, an, an owner, or an operator, but now let's drill down one further and talk about how an operator would put that into practice or how you've seen them put that into practice um, to engage with their people at a, at a deeper level and, and kind of how that informs how they go about their day to day. Yeah, I think it's a great question because this is the, the steps that are that are often missed. So a lot of times, you know, like myself, I've got a rule inside my company that if I go to a Tony Robbins week-long conference or go to a couple-day event, I'm not allowed to come to the office the next Monday. Like they're like, you need a breather, you need to calm all those ideas down. You need to don't come in as a Tasmanian devil and start trying to change stuff. So what ends up happening is somebody's gonna listen to this podcast and go, I need to change my culture. I've got to go in and start talking to my people. But they do it without explaining why the change is happening. So the first step is for us is to go to our people, could be a 30-minute session and just sit down and say, Hey, we've gone the our industry's gone through change. We've gone through change and struggle. We're here. We made it. But we know that we need to make it easier, stronger, better, faster as we reopen. And to do that, I'd like to start some dialogue with you. And I'd like to hear from you because um, ultimately your feedback will shape our, our direction. And you can have a couple of questions to say, you know, and I always focus on practicing appreciative inquiry. If they want to have three questions, what's working, what's not working, and what's one thing that makes us uniquely us? because it creates consistent feedback i like that but you just want them to to share because the first two or three meetings they should and probably won't trust the process yet it's not your fault but they their other employers haven't done it or they did and they didn't follow through so the consistency of having a sit down hearing them having another sit down sharing what you heard and then continue the process you'll get more engagement you'll get more feedback because the first couple of meetings, they're they're looking at change, even if it's good, um, with question marks. Because you know people don't enjoy change, 
So yeah, um, so, you got to stay consistent to the process and, and start the conversation. Pop Menu has reimagined the restaurant. They're breaking the mold of the menu, taking the kitchen doors off the hinges, and serving up their most comprehensive technology solution yet. It's called Pop Menu Max. It comes with the previous ingredients that you've heard me talk about on this podcast, right? Uh, websites designed with SEO in mind, marketing tools to keep you top of mind with guests, and of course, their patented interactive menu technology. Now, this new recipe brings automated phone answering third-party online order aggregation, waitlisting, and more, all of that to the table. So Pop Menu's phone answering technology has your phones ringing covered, right? No need to worry about it anymore. With AI, artificial intelligence, the simple questions that, that used to keep your uh, your phone line tied up can now be handled without pulling a staff member off the floor from your in-person hospitality to answer the phones. No more missed reservations, no more uh, worrying about uh, if they know the hours or if you're missing revenue. And that's just the beginning. You have a passion for food, right? Pop Menu has a passion for technology. Together, it's a recipe for restaurant success. Now, even more digital ingredients are in their technology pantry, and Pop Menu is helping restaurants attract, engage, remarket, and transact with their guests on a whole new level. Trust me, if you're a restaurant owner, you need Pop Menu to take your business to the next level. Now, for a limited time only, get $100 off your first month, plus you get to lock in one unchanging monthly rate. Go to popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy to claim this offer. Again, that's $100 off your first month at popmenu.com slash restaurant strategy. As always, that link is in the show notes. Yeah, so what's working, what's not working, and what's something that makes us uniquely us? And you're just understanding their perspective on those three areas, and that's how it begins. Now, consistency and commitment, right? Like they go hand in hand. So it's about being deliberate about uh, about reinforcing that. So how do you then build trust or is it simply a matter of it happening enough that eventually people begin to trust? H how does that happen? It's a, I think it's a great question to see me going this direction. Frequency isn't enough. Um, so you can have consistent conversations, which is a great step. Okay. Frequency, conversation and communication followed by action. And that action should be, I've heard you, we're going to do this together. And the point is that you're not going to take on changes as an owner or manager yourself. You're creating, you're co-creating focus, you're co-creating visions. So how do you make a change um, together? So based on the feedback, you have to act. And you can also, and I really encourage this, if you get feedback around something that you can't do or are not willing to do, you need to tell them, say, I really heard you here but I need you to trust my leadership or trust my perspective or trust my timing. And we're actually going to shelve that for now, or we're not going to do it. So then they still feel heard. They'll respect the feedback, but it's consistent conversation and communication followed by action. And I think what scares people is they think big, we have to make massive change. You don't need to make massive change. It's about the small, simple things, the simple, consistent, the consistency, that will build trust for your staff and for your guests. So then talk to me, give me a couple examples of that. Where, in your experience, what were some of the small things that ended up having a kind of a profound um, effect on on the restaurant? Sure. Um, so there's the feedback loop has been one major piece for us. So um, often people go once and they'll ask for feedback and they don't hear much about it. But when if you want to see change in culture in a simple um, action is to ask for feedback, share it, and act on it. 
Um, there's been processes from uh, the hiring process. So we hear something that we need to change our hiring process or how we receive resumes. We need to change the reservation process. Doing inventory on Mondays and month ends is killing our managers. You know, if they're, they've already worked in overnight, they're coming back in. So it's, it's looking at you know, what's the pain point of the bottleneck that is having a negative impact on your culture. And you could hear the simplest things, you know, draft line five hasn't been working properly for X amount, fix draft line five. <laughs> U.S. is missing these 12 buttons. We've been telling you for, and this, you'd be amazed at how frustrated staff are. Yeah. Because they see the small things that they have to deal with every day. But, you know, I know as myself, you know, I'm not, as an entrepreneur, I'm not going into QuickBooks to figure out the problem my bookkeeper is. Yeah. So I need to hear what his bottlenecks are. So, um, we, if we hear them and, and create change. So what I love so much about this conversation, and uh, we're half an hour in, and we talked about kind of this big top level changes, coming up with a vision, really making sure that um, – that then you're aware of it so that it can translate down to your people. That That's big. And now we're talking about the opposite side, right? Really starting at the bottom and working our way up. Uh, and it seems to me like that's how you start stitching together culture, right? You, you do the big, you know, the, the big work overhead, and then you do the little things, you know, bird by bird, as Anne Lamott says, you know, a little bit of the time on the bottom. Is that how it begins? Is it really that simple? Um, I, I think the biggest step, if there was one focus for people wanting to change their, their culture, I, I think it it's simple, yes, um, consistently done, no. But the one solution that I would recommend to everybody, often when we talk about culture and change, we're talking about frontline staff. So hourly staff in the front of house or back of house doing something different. So we create an idea in a boardroom or sitting at a table, you know, manager owner sitting at a table, we make a decision to make a change and it's about them behaving differently, staff doing something different and the accountability immediately skips over and goes to the staff member. If we want to make consistent cultural change in your business, the accountability, the measurements, the focus should stay on your managers. So what your staff do is a result of consistent leadership through your management team. So if we want to change culture, as an owner or a leader, it's really about getting those managers repeatedly on board, behind it, making sure that they're supporting it, and then coaching them as they show up to the staff. Because the staff will follow lead from the managers, but if we skip over accountability, go right to staff, it's the biggest um, downfall I see in trying to change culture. So this is this is so great. So then talk to me then, because this seems to me to, to be tethered back to this idea of getting the right people on the bus. At what point do you say where you're not getting buy-in from the managers, where you're they're not where they're not executing your vision, you know, holding the hourly staff. At what point do you say the problem, the flaw is mine? And maybe there's not a simple answer to this, but I'd love to know your take on it. But at what point do you say, well, they're the wrong people, I gotta get the right people on the bus. The problem is with them. And when do you sit there and say, No, the problem is with me. They're not buying in because this plan is flawed, this idea can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I, th I think to start with, you know, the why, be why this is so important for a leader to look at themselves, owner, senior leader, to make sure they're managing and leading properly or managers buying in is my coach taught me 10 years ago. And it's, it's this vivid vision inside, you know, my eyes when I think about it, he said for any strategy to work, the entire team needs to be 10 foot tall and bulletproof. So I almost see like this knight in armor, linked in arms, so if there's a kink in the armor, and we all know this, and we know the saying, you're your weakest link, but if there's managers out there not supporting what you're looking to do, even if they're great managers, 
but they're not supporting your vision, we need to slow down. And that's where consistent meetings, it'll show up. If you have if you have consistent meetings, consistent conversations, you'll see who's not supporting. And I love what you said. It's not necessarily, hey, let's get rid of them and find new people. That's not going to solve the problem. What we want to do is find out why. Um, and I've sat with hundreds of managers, and I can think about a couple right now, just meeting with them and finding out why are you not buying into this strategy. Think of this incredible young woman meeting a, I think it's a $13 million Mexican restaurant here in Toronto, really beautiful spot. And she just wasn't buying into the new training process. And she's an incredible leader. And I sat with her and she had some wounds from how she was treated when she was hired. Mm. She was talked to disrespectfully by another manager and she was doing a great job. But when I unpacked it with her, she was, there was something that really mattered to her that she wasn't willing to move past. And as soon as we took the time to slow down and some senior leaders had to apologize for the situation and claim it and own it. And they did. And now like she wasn't the GM of this restaurant at the time. She was at another one of their locations. Now she's leading this massive restaurant with the best team I've seen. But often we have to stop, listen to people to hear what's in the way. Because um, some things, and you have to decide then, can you fix or can you not? Um, you know, in my companies, we've rarely had somebody like where we've let somebody go from our company. But if that ever did happen, it was there was lots of notice you know, lots of time. And it was just an agreement that we were making a cultural change um, that they don't necessarily agree. And that's okay. You know, your values as a restaurant operator aren't right or wrong, but they're yours and you should be proud of them and find people who support them. Yeah, I think so much of this, uh, at least uh, as I'm listening to you talk, has to do with uh, expectations, right? Managing expectations. Um, again, understanding what you need, then what you expect from the, the people who are going to work with you and for you. Um, and making sure all of that gets clearly communicated with them. Um, and I think too often um, we don't do a very good job of that. We haven't been intentional um, with our practices. And I think if there's anything that's been really clear uh, through COVID, now uh, coming out of COVID, uh, COVID um, hiring our staff, retraining our staff, it's that um, we have to be really intentional and specific um, with with what we want and how we train people uh, to execute our vision. And the one thing that we that I talk about is positive leverage. So if we want to get people to change, it's not leverage where we're you know, putting somebody over, but positive leverage for change. I think the conversation starts with your staff if, after the holiday season, once you get through it and you have to make change. It's sitting down and just explain, like being as open as you're willing to be about what you've just gone through financially, you know, personally, what the impact on the business has been. You know, my entire team knows the cash investment, you know, the hundreds of thousands of dollars that we needed to invest and make it to this stage of the pandemic in our other company. They know that. It's not that I'd want them to care about the money, but they just know. They know why we're making decisions and they know why we need to be better. I'm really proud of my team and I'm proud of most of my clients, but we need to be better next year. Yeah. So it's the positive leverage side to, to say the world changed. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. Not our fault, but it's our problem. And looking at it based on the market changes, cost increases, the menu increases you're going to have to do to survive. Yeah. We have to do something different for our guests. And I think the staff can see it. So they might not resist it as much if it's communicated genuinely. Yeah. So then, you know, so much of this is that we always had to, you know, as an operator, you know, when you're running a restaurant, um, you had to worry about the restaurant down the street, across, you know, across the street. Uh, somebody's going to come work here or there, and um, you just had to make sure you made, they were, uh, they could make better money with you. They could have a better schedule here with you. That 
that you were better than the next restaurant. And nowadays, if there's anything that's become obvious, is that our industry isn't really appealing. Um, it hasn't been all that appealing for years. Uh, there's certainly benefits to it. Um, how do we begin Again, in your estimation, you're understanding all the work that you do. And I, I think the, the beauty of what you do is you get to peek behind the curtain at a lot of different restaurants. Yeah. How do we begin changing as an industry? And, and so, again, I want to go big and then talk about how we do that small. How do we make our jobs better? How do we make our jobs uh, worth applying for? And I think it's starting with rethinking the job from the person's, from their perspective, not from yours. So pre-COVID is we need to hire people to help us run our restaurant. Yeah. And they're going to come work. We're going to call them. If they're lucky, we'll interview them. If they're even luckier, we might hire them. That whole game is, has changed. It's completely different. So if we want to connect with our people, retain our people, find people, what I do is sit with people and say, okay, what do they want and need? What's most important? Um, so the sitting down and saying, you know, Sally, your day manager now, what does she really want and need? Why is she staying? And we can look at the patterns of people in the business now. And then how can we put an offer together if we can that allows us to, to appeal more to others? And there's simple ways to do it. And you know, one of the lowest hanging fruit uh, pieces for managers, um, not only hourly staff, is pay periods. You know, one thing we're seeing is can we shrink the pay period? You know, some people are still on biweekly pay periods. Can it be weekly? Um, we're working with some major clients trying to move to daily. There's some great new technology. You know, seventy-five thousand dollar manager or or forty-eight thousand dollar manager needs that money to pay the rent. Yeah. So we can create a competitive point of difference just with some cash flow changes and a different payroll approach. Um, we could look at time off. We could look at hours worked. Um, and again, all easy. But the, the what's going to allow you to change again is can you can you make it doing things the way you did before? Yeah, that's uh, you know it's funny because I'm working with a couple clients and they're and. Some people have rethought the way they do things. Some people haven't. Uh, one in particular has has rethought in so many big ways, and there's so many so much resistance um, from the managers because um, they're just because uh, this company is thinking so deeply outside the box. Um, and I and I really applaud them for doing all this stuff. So I mean, pay benefits. Um, development right because people want to continue being challenged it's funny i'm uh, i'm reminded of uh of daniel pink's book drive uh, if anybody uh, out there has not read it it's totally worth reading especially as a leader as an operator as a restaurant owner now, but it talks all about you know the things that motivate people and he talks about you know type a and b personalities and then he talks about theory x and theory y which is a a management philosophy right are you are you stern and overbearing and you know you hold people rigid or do you allow you know, autonomy in there. And he goes a long way out of his way to get back to this idea of X and Y, extrinsic and intrinsic uh, motivations, right? Thinking about like what motivates people and can we bend more to this, this theory Y, this type, this, this type I person where people are doing it for intrinsic reasons, meaning they, they just want to do a good job. They like the challenge. They're growing. Again, all things being equal, you're going to get a job that pays you money, so why else? If I can do this or that, why would I do that when I can be doing this? And how can we define this so that it's not just we show up, we cut the onions, we cut the celery, but but how can we give some autonomy and dare I say creativity um, that that ends up going a long way? And there's you know generations of of all this kind of like human behavioral studies and psychology. So so how do we how do we do that? I mean, do you do you buy into that? Like we shouldn't just be uh, motivating people with 
with more pay or, or, or threaten them with punishments, but, uh, but find jobs that really sort of challenge them and speak to their greater drives? I, I do. And, and the great companies and great teams I get to see, um, you know, rarely is your compensation is fair. If they perform well, it's above average. But it's never the like for the great leaders I've seen join some of the teams that I work with. It's it's about what they stand for. Um, so I had a, a gentleman I really love and respect that I work with, Ellie. He left McDonald's and joined one of my clients, Pizza Nova, and he's at the stage of his career, had really high senior leadership jobs. Didn't doesn't need to work. But when I talked to him about why did he join the team, you know, why this team? They're growing like crazy. They're a huge family-owned company, 150 locations, and it was about the purpose. Um, it was about what they stood for. It was about that it was family owned. Um, and it was about what they were looking to create, the experience they're looking to create in quick service. And then I talked to the other three senior leaders they hired recently, completely different personality mm-hmm. types. And it was all the same response. It was bigger than self. So one thing to think of what people really want and crave, and this is where I'm doing a lot of my study now, it's you know, the, the strategy around tribes and community. People want to be developed, but they don't want to be developed you know, watching their computer. They want to learn with others. They want to be part of a team that stands for something. They want to be part of a group that's looking to do something that they believe in. And I know some of this might sound woo-woo or a little bit cheesy, but it's, it's real. It doesn't matter if you're making coffee or your most expensive steak in your city. It's uh, it means something to the people, even with the small things. I don't think it sounds woo woo, and even if it is, I love it. Um, <laughs> I've been a real fan of. Uh, I'm a bit woo woo, but I'm okay. No, I, I, I listen. Coach. I am too, because um, this is deep work. We have to we have to really look inward and think about you know how we can change or how we can help support our people. Otherwise, we're going to have no people working for us, and and then and then we've got a real uh, and then we've got a real crisis on our hands. This has been a crunch, uh, but it can very easily become a crisis. So I said before we uh, before we hit record, I said, I don't want this to be like a how to of like how you find staff, because I think that's um, that's that's pretty useless. Um, and certainly I want this to have sticking power, which now I, I hopefully uh, the listeners are getting a great deal of value out of this. I, I, I love the way you um, I love the way you frame this in the book. And I love the, the conversation that we're able to have now, because to me, it's so much of it is about um, is about this culture. And again, even you just said, Right. Like, you know, why did this guy go work, you know, switch companies and go work when he surely didn't need to work? And it was about the why, which is where we started the conversation. Right. Understanding, have a, cl- a clear vision, you know, for who you are, uh, about who you are, who you're for, uh, what problem you solve and, and, and why this place needs to exist. Again, if you define all that and then make sure it's very obvious to not only your customers, your employees, you will attract the kind of people um, that want to be a part of that thing you're building. They, they do. And I think this is like the fun part of the conversation for me is that it puts a little bit of pressure on the leaders listening and the owners listening to, to take some time just to think, to take some time to you know revisit where you're at, what you want, where you're going, what the destination, what the goals are. And this stuff might sound tactical. Um, it's not. And it's necessary. When I started my coaching company, the idea was to bring common business practice into the hospitality industry. Uh, it's, uh, it's so long overdue. And now we just can't get away now we can't get away from it, right? You could sneak by with these razor thin profit margins, but now, like you said, the uh, the pandemic didn't break anything. It just shone a light on all the cracks and the chips and we can't get away with it anymore. And we've got to run our restaurants like uh, like we run businesses. Have to, uh, or, or next year, like everyone's talking about closures now. Uh, my concern is it won't be as newsworthy. And I know the restaurant associations are, are fighting as hard as they can to keep the numbers visible to their states or countries. But what, you know, 12 months from now, 
you know, the, the real, the leverage, the risk. And I had to do this in my businesses with my partner as well. So we had to really look at everything and tear it all down. Yep. And just make sure 12 months from now, are we doing something that we still love? Are we still reaching the audience that we feel we most can support? You know, are we employing the people that really care about where we're going? And those are the same questions I hope that, that operators are asking themselves. Because if we look at crises, even the financial crisis, if we go back to non-smoking, no smoking going into effect, we've been through challenges and change and somebody always wins whatever city you're in i guarantee that you know three or four you know scrappy new groups started so multi-site restaurant groups three five locations started in your city during the financial crisis and some big chains might have went away or independence but growth comes on the other side of this and it won't be for everybody and it won't be easy but people are going to win like i'm not a negative person there is the opportunity to win through the other side of this i i I totally agree. So that brings me to the kind of the last area I wanted to cover as we, we talk about this book, kind of about halfway through the book, and it really felt like a like a big turning point as you read this book. And again, uh, if there's anyone out there who hasn't seen the book, who doesn't know, we're going to include the link in the show notes. Um, it, it's really great. You'll read it in four days like I did, um, and I think you'll get a great deal. I and mean, the beauty of it is you'll read it once in four days, but it's uh, filled with kind of like exercises, assignments, worksheets, and you're going to go back if you do it right, and you're going to work your way through methodically go through it once just to get the overview um, of I think what Matt is is talking about but then go back and be really methodical about it but about halfway through the book um, you have this chapter called uh, are you playing to win and you ask the question uh, what does winning look like and I think that ties in so beautifully to this um, this thing that we're talking about right which is that we have to start uh, running our restaurants like businesses uh, explain a little bit about that section of the book and, and how you came to that and what that question means yeah, and that was a, a question that, that my coach asked me again about 10 years ago. And he said, Matt, are you, are you playing to win? And I said, of course I am, Colin. Like, he was kind of offended. He said, no, wait, I want you to hear me. Are you playing to win or are you simply playing not to lose? And I went, okay. And I, I think it was probably the most offensive question. I don't know why it triggered me so much at the time. But I remember his nice boardroom in Calgary and he, he, he had a very aggressive coach. Um, but he said, you're, you're playing, you're playing safe. You're, you're just, your businesses are doing great. You know, you've got great clients, but there's so much more opportunity. And when you're not, you're going after that opportunity, there's risk. You know, there's risk of decline. There's risk of retraction. There's risk of, you know, employees starting to go and do this stuff on their own, whatever the situation was. So the one question that I ask when I do my coaching is, you know, what does winning look like? And first question, are you playing to win or are you simply playing not to lose? Right. Sit with that question over your coffee tomorrow morning and be real with yourself. You don't need to share your thoughts with anybody, but it was a hard one for me and it is for most people. So, and then from there, if, if we are playing to win, what does winning look like? Uh, we held a workshop just prior to COVID. We had 200 leaders, uh, top leaders in the country in a room. Um, they all came in and we had like some of the best restaurant trains, independent owned restaurants. I was shocked with the amount of people that showed up. Um, and we had about halfway through the day and these are the best run groups. And I said, who would be willing to stand up and share with me how your restaurant group is planning to win? And there was trust in the room and we did them. We built the momentum and the bond and out of the best operators, people couldn't put their hand up. Hmm. And that's where the most calls came back. And we did work with so many of those people was they knew that they had to define it as top operators. But when you look at sports, it's at the Toronto Raptors game last night. The Raptors know exactly what success looks like. They're not going to achieve it this year, unfortunately. Yeah. Maybe the least <laughs> but, uh, but for your side, is what does success look like? And here's a real important piece that I want leaders and owners to think about. There's a good chance in Q1 of next year that your business will lose money. If we don't have a definition of how we win, 
just based on challenges, change, period, COVID, variants, all the stuff, there's the chance that that's possible. And it is the truth for a lot of people. But the challenge is a lot of owners come in and keep giving their managers and their staff shit because they're losing money. But that that's the projection. That's the expectation. If you have clear goals on how we win, intentional, strategic you know, financial goals that have an upside in the later quarters of the year and a definition of how you win are, are very, very powerful. I, I, I loved that whole section of it. And then I want to I want to drill down a little bit. So how do you how do you start to define that? I mean, is this just um, like financially, like this is how much profit I want to make, or this is I want to retain people, or how, how do you how do you begin to define that? Yeah, I think it's a great question, and the profit side comes up, right? So uh, depending on the personality type of the leader, someone's going to say financials or profit. And we talked about Simon Sinek start with why earlier, and I love that. But what thing he shared in a lot of his work was profitability is a result of consistent behavior. Yes. So profitability, like it has to come, we have to have activity up front that's going to produce cash flow that ultimately hopefully produces profit. So from our side, it's, you know, what are the behaviors that we, that we need to do consistently that's going to get us the profitability results? But when it comes to setting up the the how we win and, and what does it look like, I think it's, it's taking the conversation five layers deeper. Because the common response, we're both coaches. I guarantee if we call 10 people after this call, eight of them are going to say, I want people are my most important thing for next year. Sounds good. Really dangerous to start saying that out loud if you don't have a plan and you're not going to act on it. So the way of how do we win? Okay, so we care about our people. For each one of our clients, it's going to look slightly different. How do we have that show up to them? What's our promise to our people next year? And I want why this how we win question is so important is it's sharing with people what our intention is that holds us accountable to stay consistent. So if we have, uh, we want to have the best staff engagement scores, we want to have full hiring grids, we want to be able to, you know, have this many managers so we can open two more locations. So whatever the winning strategy is, and as we open two more locations, our revenue will go to $8 million next year, whatever the, the number is. But what we're saying when we share that out loud is what are we going to commit to do consistency, consistently as leaders? Because your goals and your results, you know, they're, they're driven by your staff, but they're they're an idea a vision from your leadership so talk to me about this last section in the book um which really has to do with uh it's called invest in yourself and talk to me about how how do operators begin to do that when they're staring down um numbers in the red in the first quarter what what does that look like how does that happen at a small level what does that look like at a large level and then how does that tie back into this idea um, to staff development and, and, you know, how does investing in yourself really end up being an investment in, in them? And I think that's a lot of work I do. And it was my track record. So my background was, you know, I, I was told I had a learning disability, was told I wouldn't graduate high school, was told to get a trade job, um, found the restaurant industry and people showed me how to start to invest in myself. So like I really struggled in school, scrapped my way through a three-year college degree, um, but where I became and was able to learn is just starting to invest in, in reading and courses, and as things got a little bit better, attending seminars and workshops. But investing in yourself, um, for any team, if the leader's not investing in their own growth and development and expecting their team to, it often doesn't work. Um, no judgment here, but we can't expect our people to invest in themselves if we're not willing to do the work as well, and if we're not aligned in the work. 
and it can you can make a significant investment in yourself but content is free one thing COVID did is it gave away content yeah. so if you can find you know 100 hours of eric thomas on youtube if you don't know eric thomas if you want to get a little bit of a spark or, or go into some of his non-yelling videos he's one of my favorites hundreds of hours tony robbins stuff you could watch for days uh Brene brown's I'm looking at Brene brown quotes right now but Brene's podcast like just continue to make a consistent investment in yourself but one thing that we're trying and this not to have a shameless plug but what we're launching in the new year is a peer community so a forum community for owners to show up in groups of eight to twelve in a confidential setting so they can share yeah where they're at, yeah. what the challenge with. And our industry is still missing a peer community. Every other industry I, has it. I, this is this is what I do. I, I run a I run a group coaching program for operators because I just talk to operators all day long, and they just tell me they said you know it's such a um, it's uh, it's such a, a relief to be able to talk to you because I can't talk to anybody honestly. I can't talk to my managers. Certainly can't talk to my hourlies, and I can't talk to my spouse, which is something I hear a lot. So because they just want to be supportive, they want to make the pain go away. They don't understand, though, the, the minutiae that, that I deal with, and they don't understand it on, on this kind of deeper foundational level. And it's so um, so satisfying to be able to talk to somebody who knows the industry inside and out, understands what I'm going through, and then to be able to share that with a room full of a, a dozen other people. I've I've been doing this for a little while now, and it's uh, it's been such a revelation um, to be able to watch that, to be able to be that kind of conduit to make all of this happen. Uh, I'm sure you can attest to this as well. And one thing that, as you shared earlier, like we, a lot of what we create in the book, there's a lot of assets and tools and processes Like we give all of that yeah. away. So yeah. on our website, you can go to mattroff.com. There's dozens of assets. Um, we've got, you know, West Shore Online backs up the book where there's two hours of video content. Like, and there's lots of courses out there. It's just, how do you, and it's not about the content. So it's not about my book, my content, your content, our coaching program. It's you finding what works for you so you can take the action to get the results, not that you want, but that you deserve. I, I totally deserve I, I totally agree. You know, there's just something so generous about what you do and how you do it. Uh, and obviously, I, I think it's so closely tied to your to your why. I mean, I just find myself gravitating towards people. Like, I just want to surround myself with really kind of smart, insightful, generous people. Like, generous is the thing that I've just, I keep landing on. Um, and I feel really grateful that I've been able to uh, learn from uh, people like yourself who are really generous. And, um, and then use this podcast as an opportunity, as a conduit to be able to bring, um, to bring you your work, your thoughts, your ideas, and your solutions um, to the listeners, because at the end of the day, you know, that's what it's all about. It's about helping people, right? It's that Zig Ziglar quote, which I feel like I'm quoting on every episode now. I feel like I'm talking about it quite a bit, but right, the Zig Ziglar famously said, you can get anything you want in life as long as you help enough other people get what they want. And I think it's like, it's the North Star that, that, um, that helps guide everything that I do. And it, it sounds like uh, very much guiding you what you do. I think that's like a stepbrothers moment for me. Do we just become best friends? Because anybody, <laughs> Ziggler, um, I still remember driving up and down the highway when I was a beer rep and putting Zig Ziglar tapes in my tape deck um, yeah. to the yeah. point where I wore them out. Um, but and that's that's the side. So whatever people hear in this, it's not complicated. Often people think that it's I have to think of this grand vision or you know complicated vision so people buy them and like it. The simpler it is, the more genuine it is, the more it lands and connects with the right people. And um, it's not as much work as most people think it is. It just takes you to make that commitment to yourself. So you serve yourself, but also help everybody around you. It's, yeah, for sure. Uh, listen, Matt, I've loved this conversation. We are going to uh, share the link uh, to the book in the show notes, but um, tell people where they can go learn more about you, everything that you're up to, and we'll make sure to include all of those links in the show notes as well. 
Absolutely. You can go to mattroth.com is the website. It'll share. There's a bunch of video content. There's some downloadable assets. It'll share the book. Uh, so mattroth.com is one of the best places. But if you just want some ongoing content, we put out about a video a day on LinkedIn. So if you want to add me to LinkedIn, it's all content. It's specific to our industry. It's based around people and leadership, and you will get some tactical pieces in there as well. But uh, our goal is to try to put out you know, five short videos a week to help. You know, if it lands for you, we just hope it helps and and uh, help support the change that's needed heading into 2022. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know, six, seven months ago, uh, that's how I was introduced to you, to be perfectly honest, uh, through some of your uh, LinkedIn content. And uh, after like the first couple, I was like, who is this guy? This guy's great. Uh, and, and I really, and I really appreciate it. Um, uh, you know, what you were sharing, how you were sharing. Uh, you brought up uh, Brene Brown uh, earlier. Uh, it was both generous and vulnerable, which, uh, which I really appreciated. I think uh, certainly everybody listening to this podcast can appreciate those two qualities and how important they are. Absolutely. Matt, listen, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day uh, to sit, to talk with me and to, to share your ideas. Thank you for the book. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much. So grateful to be here today and hope you have a great weekend. My pleasure. Thank you. Once again, I want to thank Matt for his time, for sitting with us, for chatting about his new book. Uh, you're going to find a link to his book, to his website in the show notes. Please go check it out. It's a really, uh, it's a quick read. It's a great read. Can't recommend it highly enough. Uh, I want to thank you again for joining me. I thank you for joining me each and every week. If you haven't done so yet, please go give us a rating on uh, Spotify. Please go give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't listen using those two players, uh, those ratings and reviews really help boost us up in the rankings. We consistently now uh, have been tipping through the top 100 uh marketing podcasts on Apple Podcasts because of all these five-star ratings and reviews. So go on, log on, tell people what you're learning, why it's worth uh, why it's worth people's time uh, to come listen to this show. We're building an extraordinary community and I can't do it alone. I need your help uh, to help me do this. Thank you very much. Go log the ratings and the reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Have a great week and I will see you next time.